Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest of Investec's Focus Talks, a series of candid conversations with some of the world's most influential thinkers, innovators, and leaders. I'm Ruth Lees, CEO of Investec Bank PLC, and I'm delighted to be joined today by John Amici. John is an organizational psychologist, a chartered scientist, an OBE, and the founder of APS Intelligence, which partners with organizations to help them deliver on the promise of diversity and inclusion, as well as tackling many other workplace challenges. In a previous life, he was also an extremely talented NBA player. That's quite the resume, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we'll be discussing inclusive leadership. It's a topic that's very important to us here at Investec, and as a woman myself, mother of three, as chief executive of a bank, it's perhaps no surprise that inclusive leadership is an issue close to my heart as well. John's experience of finding broad-spectrum, evidence-based solutions to challenges in the workplace means he's a leading expert on inclusive leadership. But before we dip into your insights on that, John, we'd love to know a little bit more about you and your life and what inspired you to become a psychologist. Thank you, Ruth, and uh, a pleasure to be here. The um, What inspired me to be a psychologist? I grew up in Stockport, which is in the north of England. Um, my mum was a GP, a doctor, family doctor. And I used to, uh, you can tell this is a long time ago, because I used to go on visits with her um, into the, the the homes of people who were, were unwell. And my mum worked a lot in palliative care, so people who weren't going to get better. And I watched her operate there, and I won't go into all the, the detail of it, but essentially I realized that, that some very important part of what she did was not the medicine. Um, I think when you when you see people working in palliative care, you, you realize that you know the, the power of the medicine is not to make somebody better. So there is something else that you have to do. And I'd watch how she interacted with these family members um, in living rooms, distraught. You can imagine, in fact, many of us don't have to imagine because the, the last two years have provided for too many of us that kind of pain of, of family members who are unwell. And I used to watch how they would pepper her with questions that like their despair weaponized. And I suddenly realized that the thing that she was doing that was the most powerful was the fact that when she left that space, a group of people who felt in despair felt like they could cope for another week. And I thought that what she did was just just magic. Um, and, you know, that's what made me want to get into psychology. I, I knew I was never going to be any good at the, uh, <laughs> the blood and guts part. I was never going to be cutting up cadavers as part of my training. But the idea that with your words you can change how somebody feels and that somebody's more able to cope really appealed. John, at Investec, we believe that belonging, inclusion and diversity, so we speak about belonging as well as inclusion and diversity, and it's it's belonging in particular that that we find the hardest to really, you know, get, get up, you know, to improve. Um, we believe these are all key to a high-performance culture and to unlocking possibilities in an organization. Could you tell us, based on your experience and your research, what effective inclusive leadership, you know, what, what effect it can have on performance? Well, the good news is that what you believe is, is backed up by a, a huge amount of evidence, belonging and inclusion especially. Diversity is important, obviously, but the real performance prerogative isn't just in the presence of people who are different. We often are fooled into thinking it's about, oh, if we can get two more women over there or two, two more of that kind of person over there and two more over there. And that's not really the, the, the end goal. The idea is trying to find the very best brains and recognizing that sometimes the very best talent doesn't look like you expect, doesn't sound like you expect, doesn't come from where you expect, doesn't have the backgrounds you expect. But once you've got that, the idea of helping people to feel like they belong is is hugely important because the presence of difference has never meant access to the brilliance of difference. That's the real key. We want the brilliance of difference and that is enabled by each of us. It's not a passive thing. That's why, you know, inclusion is something that's felt. Uh, belonging is something that people have to enable. 
right? That people feel included, but belonging is something you have to say to somebody, you have to engage with people in a way that says, you are a part of us. So in everything you do, at every meeting you come on, whether it's virtual or in the real world, every interaction you have, no matter how cursory, oftentimes people know that they belong or not by whether anybody looks at them when they walk through a hallway. By when in a meeting, we've all, I mean, we're all very tired, I think, of, of virtual stuff in some senses, but when you're in a meeting, you see that junior person who's had their hand up for like 40 minutes of a meeting and nobody even once has asked them, what have you got to offer? So this is why we have to be really careful. This is why we have to engage with each other to make that difference. And John, what would you say are the consequences of, of getting this wrong? We're seeing it right now. Um, it's, it's belonging, especially when you're using the word belonging. We're seeing it right now. Across the United States, the metrics are best in the United States that I've seen, but it's happening equally across mainland Europe. It's happening equally in the United Kingdom. We're seeing this, it's called various things like the great resignation, but it's not really, it's a great rejection. It's people saying, you know what? I'm not coming to work in these disrupted times with organizations going through endless transformation, necessary, but, but transformation. I'm not going to be there if I am made to feel every day less than I should, less like I belong, less like I matter. And people are voting with their feet. In the United States, I think it was it's 4% of the working population every month has shifted since August of last year. People are going to vote for their feet. Every one of us, we don't leave, I mean, this is not new verbiage, right? But we don't leave organizations and brands nowadays, especially when we're this distant. We leave the person across the screen from us. We leave the person who can't or won't make a connection, who can't or won't, the people who can't or won't make an individual feel like they belong, and talent will exit. John, this is something we talk a lot about at Investec, which is uh, it doesn't just matter what you do from a performance perspective, but who you are as a person. Uh, you know, really, you know, leading me to talk a little bit about culture. I know you've previously said that the worst behavior you tolerate defines your culture. And that really, really resonated with me. And it reminds me at Investec that we talk about trying to do the right thing, even when no one is looking. That's always been an, an ethos here. And there's always been a generosity of spirit, something I've stayed here for, for 23 years, really an investment bank, I would say, with, with a heart and a soul. It's not just good enough to be an investment bank, but just your thoughts on this and culture and intolerance of behavior, calling out bad behaviors. Very interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, 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 I really like the idea that culture is defined by the worst behavior you tolerate, any one of us, not just you. Because I think oftentimes you must be in a position where it's kind of like, well, you do it, or HR does it, or some other named leader does it. But it's all of us. It's all of us deciding that when we are, when we witness something, and we're not just talking about the terrible stuff, the terrible stuff is easy. When someone does something that just breaks the rules of whether it's HR or of any particular jurisdiction or country, it's easy then for everybody to say, oh, that's terrible what I saw happening there. Somebody stealing somebody, somebody punching somebody. This is easy. Somebody using one of those forbidden words. That's easy. The hard stuff is when people do the really subtle, sophisticated stuff. You know, when that colleague had an idea and you talked about it in a casual environment and then you come to the meeting and somebody's stolen that idea and taking it for their own. Does anybody say anything? Does anybody say, actually, I think it was Ruth. We, Ruth, we were all talking with Ruth and Ruth came up with that. Ruth, could you talk more about that? So it's not even about being rude to anybody. It's just, do you speak up? I, I talk a lot about uh, littering, throwing rubbish on the ground because every time I go and talk, well, this is in the old days when you used to talk to audiences in person, but any time I would talk to an audience, I'd say in the room, everybody raise your hand if you think that littering, throwing rubbish on the ground is okay. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Nobody says it's okay. And, and that's amazing because that is not true. We do think littering is okay because all you have to do, I'm in central London, all you have to do is look around and it's okay. I used to watch from my court, from my, uh, where I live here in a courtyard. Around me is all 
professional services office, or at least it used to be. And uh, I used to watch when they'd come out at, at lunch break, have a cigarette, grab a sandwich. And when they finished, it, it was just automatic on the floor. And that's when we knew it was okay because I would look around the courtyard and often there'd be a ton of people milling about, some of them wearing the same lanyard. They come from the same office and they'd see it and they did nothing. And that's how we know something's okay. And that's what it is with culture. When even the smallest thing that doesn't fit with the values is allowed, it eliminates the value. It destroys the value. It erodes the values slowly over time. So many of the themes we're talking about today focus on the big picture. But, but as you say, and as we're talking about now, the small things, it's, it's not just the big defining moments, but in your book, The Promises of Giants, which I really, really loved and enjoyed so much. Thank you very much. You speak about the individual everyday actions and behaviors of colleagues, managers, leaders that drive organizational culture. So what small steps or shifts in behavior should we be encouraging to create the changes we'd like to see? Um, there's some really simple stuff, and, and I'm always slightly afraid people will think this is kind of woo-woo, bad, you know, nonsense, but it's not. There's really good evidence. I, I was reading the other day, I was writing uh, an article, um, and I was researching it, reading the other day, that most of us spend most of our day not here, not present. We're actually not thinking about the thing that we're doing right now when it's happening. When we sit in a meeting, something in the order of 55% of us, if we're not presenting, are immediately somewhere else. We're either in the thing we're going to do next and we're thinking about that, or we're thinking about the thing that we were just doing, or we're daydreaming about something else. We often use it as a defense mechanism to kind of just, because it's boring, or it's we've done it before, or we've already completed, or it's painful, or whatever else. But it doesn't help. And with human beings, one of the first things you can do to make sure that you tell other people that you think they belong is to pay attention, is to lever your attention on them when you talk to them. I know that sounds really obvious, but our attention is a tool or a weapon. We all know that when somebody's not paying attention to you, they are saying something about you. They might be saying you're boring. They might be saying what you're saying is not of value, but they are saying something negative about you when they don't pay attention. This kind of fundamental element of respecting human beings by saying no matter your rank in an organization where you fit in the hierarchy, no matter how recently you arrived, no matter your gender, no matter your, your ethnicity or anything else, I am going to, when I am in your presence, even if it is a fleeting 60-second West Wing-style conversation in the corridor, I'm going to pay full attention to you. I'm going to listen actively and I'm going to respond appropriately. I know it seems really fundamental, but it's, it, or maybe dull, but that makes such a difference. If you spend a day and every single time you're in a situation where someone could pay attention to you, they do. There is something that happens that says, wow, I must matter here. And that's what we want to achieve, right? I must matter here. That's why people pay attention. I've tried to go through whole days on these Zoom calls of, of not looking at my phone while I'm talking to people. And, and typically I have so many people who are, who are looking at me at the same time. But what happens by the end of the day is I'm over my mailbox is overwhelmed. I just cannot keep up. But I've, I've actually consciously decided not to keep up with the emails because I think the people in front of me need my attention more than the emails, although it is getting me into a little bit of hot water and I am dropping the ball. But exactly what you're saying, it, it, it really hurts when you're talking to someone and, and, and they're not even looking at you. And it's, it's so blatant really on these Zoom screens while people think you can't notice it is actually more clear um, than actually in a room. Exactly. So I, I think it's always fascinating when you see people and they're scooching stuff off a different screen or they're just putting up a document in front and they think that you think you're still they're paying attention because every once in a while they'll nod, but you know they're not here. I think one of the other elements here that, that might have to be considered is that in order to enable this, we're going to have to change how we work. We can't just keep going with that kind of what happened was we moved from we're in work to this virtual work and now we're doing something that's in the middle somewhere but we've not changed how we operate and just because you can end a meeting and immediately start a meeting without walking down a corridor or getting in a in a in a in a tube and going somewhere or a taxi or a bus doesn't mean you should and so for you and for all of us 
that gap, even if it is just 10 minutes in between, it seems like it's wasted time. But if you're really focusing on, on your colleagues across the screen, there's a huge benefit to that. That 10 minutes allows you to play a bit of catch up, maybe a bit of triage somewhere else to help you out in the, in the background. I think we're going to have to change some of the logistics to enable the belonging that we want. Absolutely. I think that uh, I did see a video by Simon Sinek who said, you know, music happens between the notes. Really, those 10 minute intervals in between, you know, just making a world of difference to what's going on. Well, while we're on the topic of it, you know, we have just been through what I'd call actually a grueling couple of years. You know, it does feel like 2020, but then there was this 2021 as well. And we, we're talking a little bit about looking forward in the future of work. And actually, towards the end of your book, you talk about the future of work being human. I'd love to just hear some of your, your insights around that. I, I feel the same way, but I'd be interested in the way you'd express that. I know that there's this impetus towards AI analytics, um, even moving from descriptive analytics into some of the more interesting predictive analytics. But it doesn't change the fact that the world of work will always be fundamentally human. There's going to be some industries that really transform. But what we're really doing as a, as a society across the globe is moving more and more towards knowledge elements, which are still human at this point. I don't know anybody who wants, I'm a psychologist, I don't know that many people who want a virtual psychologist. Because sometimes what you need is for somebody to sit across from you, paying attention to only you in complete silence. And I'm not sure that that can be generated in a different way. The future is human, for sure. This has some implications, though. Um, it means that we can't just treat each other as widgets of productivity. Uh, it means we have to actually care about each other. Um, I, I, I retired from the NHS after 10 years. Um, uh, it, I was just a, I wasn't a, one of the important people, just a non-executive director in, in the, the UK's largest NHS trust. I retired December uh, of, of uh, 2021. I'm still sad about it. But the last two years have been a lesson. Because the thing that I've learned most as I sent condolence letters to colleagues during the height of the pandemic, sometimes um, it was two colleagues a week, was that we have to give a damn about each other as people. Colleagues have to give a damn about each other as people because that's one of the ways that we show that we care, that they belong, that they're included. We have to care when somebody comes in after a night of caring responsibilities that's not gone well, for example, with an older parent, a sibling, a child. We can't just have them come into work and pretend that that's a normal day for them and that, that, that accommodation is not gonna be required. Those colleagues who work those 14 hour days for, for a period of time, we can't just pretend that that's sustainable over time. We've got to care about people. We've got to care about people in their development. It's one of the things I know Investec really talks about a lot, the idea that you don't just come here to, to stay around, you come here to see what it is you can do, explore all the different areas. But that requires that leaders actually care to learn, not just what someone says they can do, but really look at them and understand how can you help them achieve that. I think it's going to be one of the elements that makes the most robust future organizations. And I'm not just talking about liking everybody. Nobody can promise that. But an authentic, deep connection with people that says, while they abide by your values, while they are driven to pursue the goals that we share, I will care. Thanks, John. Completely agree. And, and it's, it's not enough to say you care. You have to act like you care. You really, truly have to care for it to work. Ruth, I, I entirely agree. I, I would say this, um, and you, you'll have read this in the book, but um, sometimes people don't realize that saying you care without the accompanying actions is actually more damaging than saying nothing at all. And and my mom taught me this lesson when I was a kid. Uh, it's it's in the book. It's in the last chapter. And um, I remember my mom used to, to go out before I got up in the morning and come back after I was supposed to be in bed. And it, this seemed to happen to me. I'm sure it wasn't the case, but it seemed to happen to me when I was like three, four weeks. I wouldn't see it. it that wasn't the case, but it felt like that as a kid. And I, I remember one night just staying up. I stayed up. I said, I know I'm supposed to be there. I'm going to stay up so I can see it. She walked in the door. She looked exhausted. And I ran up to her, threw my arms around her, and said, Mom, I love you. I love you so much. I just wanted to say I love you. And I, I could tell she was just holding back. And I thought it was because I was up late. And so I said, 
I'll go to bed, don't worry, but I just need to see you. And it wasn't that at all. It's that she looked over my shoulder and she could see on the wall, we had this rotor that had the jobs for the kids to do. And um, she just asked me, um, Hoover the landing. Did you Hoover the landing? That's vacuuming the floor for those of you who don't do uh, Northern English. Did you Hoover the landing? And I was like, no, I didn't, I didn't do it because I, I wanted to stay up to say, I love you. And she said, if you love me, you'd Hoover the landing. And it was just a, a really instant reminder that sometimes saying it is the easy way out. What you actually have to do is demonstrate it. And oftentimes you have to demonstrate it by doing things that you don't particularly enjoy. Because that's the thing that would have made a difference for my mum. And for our colleagues, sometimes the thing that makes a difference is not just a pat on the back saying, there, there. It's something more profound. John, as a founder and leader yourself at APS Intelligence, what do you find as the best indicators of an individual's future performance within an organisation? I tend to look for um, energy in the face of the mundane or vexing or obscure. And I hope people understand what I'm saying. The idea that, that when I see colleagues who approach stuff that is either uh, boring, really dull, and they approach it with real energy, when I see them approaching stuff that's confusing or difficult, and they approach it with real energy, when they approach stuff that's irritating, and they approach it with real energy, to me, that's a sign of somebody who's really got something going on. When I see people who love accountability, I've got a t-shirt, I'm not wearing it today, that says accountability is sexy, because I really think so. And in a collegial sense, when I see people who think, who, who are, are at any stage of their career, they're willing to say, this is mine and I'm responsible for it. They may need support, they may need challenge, they may need guidance, but this is mine and I'm responsible for it. I think that's amazing too, a really good sign of, of good things to come for the future. People who, have a, who are scientifically minded, and by that I mean people who allow evidence to change their view. I know that in, we, we're kind of, we're in this weird world where changing your mind is a bad thing, but I think it's really important. I don't know if you've read um, Adam Grant's new book, Thinking, Think Again. I have actually. And it's like, I think it's really important for us. He's, he's a colleague and a friend. I, I think he's utterly brilliant. But that idea, that idea that colleagues around you will change their perspective, even the things they have learned for the last 10 years because they've got new evidence, that's always a good sign for me. I hope people are recognizing that these things are, are, are quite different from some of the other ways that leaders often judge. Um, and that's because some of the things we use to judge future performance have no ability, no predictability. Personality tests. The only thing in personality that has any relationship with future performance is the element of conscientiousness. Not surprisingly, perhaps. Experience. People love experience, right? That, that means you're going to be good. Um, there's a brilliant study that talks about um, how, much of, how much of a predictive factor certain things are. Experience has a number of years of experience. Just, just based on the number of years, that has as much predictive fa uh, factor for future performance as graphology, handwriting. And so I'm trying to pick the things that I think really indicate a person with integrity, a person who, who's willing to take responsibility, and a person who's willing to evolve, change their mind. What you mentioned makes the world of difference in terms of inclusion and diversity, because Often the challenge is finding someone who has experience. I mean, many people haven't been the CEO before they're the CEO or whatever role it is that they happen to take up. And then also as we try to make a difference in terms of uh, gender or ethnicity, people don't necessarily have the experience in the particular role, but we do need to give them a chance. We need to give them time. It's exactly right. And Sometimes we have to face the fact that the way we recruit people and the ideas we have about what makes good talent is as much based on familiarity and similarity. It's as much based on personal comfort, whether I would feel comfortable working, whether I have to learn new things to work with a person who's different versus whether they're actually good at it. There's a, there's a wonderful woman called Shelley Kirkpatrick and she, she's written a, a ton of research on, on leadership. She's just amazing. 
Um, and, and in one of her books, she talks about the idea that really what you're looking for in people is drive, right? The, the willingness to, to be ambitious, to, to put that energy in, as I described, tenacity, the idea that simple, small setbacks don't stop you in your track, but make you reevaluate and go at it again. Um, things like initiative, things like emotional stability, uh, uh, these emotional literacy qualities are ever more important. We test for those. Things like personal insight. There'll, there'll be a number of leaders, even in good organizations, there'll be a number of leaders in your organization who have no idea the impact that they have on the people around them. Not a clue. And, and yet you can't be a good colleague if you don't know that the way you do things is causing unintended harm. Maybe you can say a little bit more about power and people not necessarily being aware of the power they have or feeling that diversity and inclusion is the responsibility of someone else rather than themselves. Yes. Um, so that, that's why that's why the Promises of Giants is called the Promises of Giants, because I'm, I'm talking about, about you, and not just you, Ruth, but everybody in your organization. We are all, everyone's a giant to somebody. Everybody has relatively more power than somebody else. Sometimes it can be a very junior colleague who has more power simply by virtue of the school they went to, or the university they went to, or some connection that they have in the organization. One of the things we have to do is be really mindful of that. I am six foot, you can't tell because I'm trapped in the <laughs> phantom zone, but I'm six foot nine. I'm, I don't know what, the, what is that? Two meters seven, for those of you who do metrics. It means tall. And, yes, and, and very tall, but I'm also huge. I'm 160 kilos, something like that. So in, as big as two people, really. What's it, what it does for me is make me acutely aware of how I operate around other people. Because I know a moment's thoughtlessness, me spinning around, pointing at something, you know, it can cause real damage to people. And I, one of the tenets of making sure that you create a sense of belonging is being really aware of yourself so that you don't do accidental harm, so that you don't inflict with that off-the-cuff joke or that that inside conversation or that behind the back conversation or, or that statement to the world because of your power, you don't inflict harm on others. Everybody has to embrace their power. So I'm not telling people to not embrace their power. All the best colleagues and leaders embrace their power. They don't pretend. There's nothing more dangerous than a giant that doesn't know his giants, right? Certainly in my case. So you've got to embrace your power, but what you've got to do is embrace power, not for what it can do for you, but what you can do with it for your organization, for your colleagues, for your team. Oh, the second part of the question was about people who don't uh, who think diversity inclusion is someone else's job. I find I, I have to, I always have to stop and think because I have to think of how do I put this charitably? The men who are listening to this, you need to recognize that women know men. Almost every minority group knows the majority because they, we have to in order to survive. What is being asked of colleagues who might find themselves in the mainstream in whatever their context, and that will be different depending on what country you're in. It won't just be white men, for example, it might be in London, it certainly would be in London, but it will be a different population in another place. What we're saying is do that same work as everybody else does. So that when new people come to you, they aren't strangers. Because one thing we know is that strangers can't team. Another thing we know is that teams are the most optimal functioning unit in an organization. Not just groups of elite individuals, that's different. A bunch of smart people who come together for a, for a project, that's not necessarily a team. But when you get familiar with people, when you understand them, when you learn about what makes them different, their quirks, all of a sudden then that builds a bond that enables you to do things that other units can't even imagine. This is a performance prerogative. It isn't the job of HR. It isn't just the job of HR. It isn't just the job of you, Ruth. It isn't just the job of senior people. Every single person has a responsibility because if you have a colleague and you don't know what to call them because they're black or Asian or something else and you don't know what to call them, if you have a colleague and you don't know how to pronounce their name, if you have a colleague with a disability and you don't know how to act around them. The one thing we know is that those people are not your colleagues because if they were colleagues, you would know. Learn about people. 
it's not just function. I always talk about the function element because I know people are very interested in winning and they want to get, and I want to win. But it's not just that. I, I look in my life and the richness afforded to me by the weird and wonderful collection of people who I know. It, it is, it is amazing. Everybody could have that. What would be some practical steps you would offer? for people to bring about that? I mean, you talk a lot about that feeling of being included. You know, you would do almost anything with your team if you feel included, if you feel they have their back, your back. What would you suggest to people? You've given us some thoughts already, but, you know, how does one go about bringing this about? And then particularly in a world where we are a little bit on Zoom and on the screen and a little bit together. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing I would say is we, we need to leave our excuses about, about the virtual world behind us. Let me start by saying this. I'm with everybody that when we first started this transition, I hated it um, well, I met with many people, especially many older people, uh, because I'm six foot nine and a lot of my impact is my personal presence. I walk into a room, I you may not like me, but you can't ignore me. <laughs> and this created a different challenge one of my skills is being able to connect with people in person in a way that helps them to realize that although I don't know you yet, I care about what is happening here, this interaction. And I was worried about whether this would translate. But I'm not talking to a screen right now, because that would be ridiculous. I'm talking to you, who has taken the time to talk to me. And I want in every second of this for you and the audience to know that I am here focused on this and we can do this with everybody. It's hard work. You pointed out before, we're going to need some breaks in between, but we can do this. I try and shortcut some of the biases that I know I have. Everybody has them. So I try and shortcut them. And this is one of the things we can do to commit for each other, to, to, to really make people feel included. When you see somebody and they're new and different, a thought will pop into your head and it'll be based on old stereotypes that have lived in your brain for a long time. The thing I would ask you to do is to just grab it and throw it away. Grab it and throw it away. You think, oh, I'd rather not have Ruth on this project. Just grab it and throw it away because it's a first uninitiated thought. It's not gonna serve you. Instead, what you do is you treat people with a benign ignorance. And I don't mean being satisfied that you don't know them, but the idea that I am going to commit to not assuming anything about you. I'm going to let you present your best foot to me. But in concert with that is enthusiastic inquisitiveness. You sit with people and you make it clear, whatever you want to share with me, I want to hear. And I will treat whatever you share with the utmost of respect. When you engage with people on that basis, it, it's compelling. People want to talk to you. People want to share with you. They want to disclose. People find it easier to let you know who they are. And once they do, you can start building that relationship that builds teams, that builds high performance. So start there. Don't throw out the assumptions that come to you. Commit to not kind of falling for the, uh, the, the, the kind of stereotypes that you might see or, or, or imagine around them and let them know. Sometimes you can just say it, Ruth, I know we don't know each other very well. I just need you to know whenever you're ready and whatever you have to tell me, I will be thrilled to hear. That's what you can do. We've, we've talked a lot about what leaders should do to bring about positive change. Are there any things you might say they should avoid or not do? What are some of the things one shouldn't do? Don't say things like, I just want the best person for the job. Because I understand what you might mean by that. I just want the best person for the job. But it's the implication that the person you might be looking at is somehow not the best person, but because they're a woman, they're, getting, they're being given an extra chance. Because they're a person with a disability, they're being given an extra chance. Don't pretend that the world is a meritocracy. And I don't mean this to be cruel to people, right? You know, Ruth, you've succeeded despite it not being a meritocracy, not because it's a meritocracy, but not just you. Every straight white man in London in Investec has, has succeeded despite it not being a meritocracy. And everybody else has as well. But it's not a meritocracy. And that's what we're trying to address here. 
the fact that it isn't a meritocracy. Yes, there's a, there's a guy called Michael Young. He wrote a book in, I thought I had that stat. I think it's 1948. Uh, but that's where the, 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 the phrase meritocracy was brought up first. The word was first brought up, but it was meant as, uh, as a negative. He was describing the, the aristocracy when he was talking about meritocracy. He was being ironic. And we just need to recognize that meritocracy is an aspiration, but it's not there yet. And when you talk about meritocracy, what you're really saying is that everyone here is, is how it's supposed to be. And yet it's not, because we know all the best talent doesn't look the way that, that most organizations currently have, are constituted. Um, in terms of other things that we can do, don't be colorblind. People love this. They say, I don't see, I don't, Ruth, I don't see you as a woman, which I, I think is <laughs> insulting. I'm not, I'm not a woman to say, but I, I think it's insulting. You know, when people say to me, I don't see you as a black person, I'm like, really? Well, that's very confusing for me because I definitely am. Um, it's not all that I am, but th there are people who think that we can solve inequality by pretending that everyone's the same and they're not all the same. And it is their differences that bring richness, that allow us different perspectives, that make us more resilient during times of change. See people's differences. There isn't one um, person with a disability. I happen to have two very close friends who are wheelchair users. And there isn't either one of those. They don't want you to pretend that they're not in a wheelchair. Because when you do that, you can't accommodate. You can't welcome them properly because you're pretending they're something they're not. Those two things, I think, would be really useful for leaders to remember. And John, in terms of trends where we are now today, I, I think at the start of my career at Investec in 1998, a long time ago, and actually recently I was watching a documentary around Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how difficult it was for her to get a job uh, in the United States not very, very long ago and, and how much she did to bring about change there. But certainly, you know, how do you see things relative to the past or relative to your childhood and and where the trends are right now and where they're going? Very complex, long question, but, but any thoughts around that? So things are clearly better than they were, right? It's better than the 70s when I grew up. It's better than the 60s when there was disruption, uh, rioting and... Uh, and the terrible persecution of black people in America and in the United Kingdom and apartheid and all kinds of other things, right? So it's better. But people often use the fact that it's better than it was X number of years ago as a reason to suggest that it is best, is it as it should be, and it's not as it should be. Unfortunately, my most accurate future prediction is this, that racism will be alive and well that people will be arguing about the systemic nature or not of it. They'll be arguing that black people are somehow deficient and Asian people are somehow this and other nationalities are somehow that and ethnicities are somehow that. When I die, I'm 51 years old. I'm not going to last forever, but my probably most cogent prediction is that even if I lived another 30 years, 40 years, racism will still be around. And that is because you can't make change without a true acknowledgement of the status quo. And that can be very painful for people. I know I'm extraordinarily privileged. I have succeeded because, um, because my mum uh, gave me breast milk when I was, when I was a baby that has a big impact on, on learning and performance in the early years because I was never without food as a child, because from being in the womb, my mother read to me and by the time I was seven, she was encouraging me to read Asimov. I had all these advantages that I didn't earn and felt like impositions, I think at the time, at least the reading part. And yet, as a person, as a black person, I'm afraid to leave my house at times because I know that people look at me as a big black person and they're afraid. And when people are afraid, they become irrational. And sometimes it manifests in them crossing the street away from me. And sometimes it manifests in imagining that I shouldn't be where I am. I live in Covent Garden in a very nice flat. And sometimes even my neighbors imagine that I'm an intruder. 
I think people need to realize that we have to embrace the fact that whilst better than some time in the past, we have so far to go. And I would just implore people to realize, colleagues at Investec, to realize that no one has to lose in this. No man has to lose so that women get equality. No white person has to lose so that black people get equality. No, no person without a disability has to lose so that a disabled person can get equity. Dignity for human beings is one of these amazing things. I mean, you, you guys are a bank, so you work in this kind of zero sum game. So over here, there's more. Well, that means there's less over here. But dignity is not a zero sum game. Dignity is one of the few things that when one person gives it to another, both parties get more. And I, and I just hope that people will embrace that and understand that if they're willing to learn about themselves and about other people who are different, that we can achieve something remarkable together and no one has to lose. John, do you think there are any organizations out there that are winning? You know, are, are there any examples for you that are winning at this? Because, you know, listening to you, you know, th that must hurt to accept this as we sit in, in 2022. It is difficult. There, there are people doing elements of it right, and you're doing elements of it right. I, I bank with you for a reason. Thank you. <laughs> I move from somewhere else. My, um, my private banker with you, Chris Duck, is amazing. He's nothing like me. If anybody's met him, you know the way I've described myself is pretty much the opposite way that one might describe Chris. And yet, I believe that his values that I knew before I knew Investex were aligned with yours. And so I moved. This is what happens when you, when you find people who act congruently with the values that really resonate. People will vote with their feet. I voted with my feet. So you are doing some parts of this right already. And everybody will benefit as you do more and more of it. Everybody will. Well, thanks for that, John. We, we really appreciate it. And we do hear this back from, from many of our clients. And we try very, very hard. But as you say, uh, look how far we've come. But we've got so much further to go. And we are trying hard. But... It's a journey on multiple levels, and uh... Ruth, if I, this is so, this is this is good. So I, I'm going to encourage everybody to to think about the word the, the journey thing because I think it should be a journey, but much like meritocracy, it's not yet. It should be a journey because let's think about what happens with a journey. In in a journey, no no one, uh, you when you set off this morning, you didn't kind of wander out your front door and say, well, let's see where I end up. You knew exactly where you were going to end up. And indeed, for this hour, you knew exactly where you'd be. And that's one of the principles in a journey. You know the destination and everybody is clear on it. The people around you know where you're going and you know where you're going. And both of those ideas are the same. The other thing with a journey is expedience. None of us sets out on a commute and says, you know what? If it takes six minutes, great. If it takes six hours, great. No one cares. No one does that. Everyone thinks the shortest amount of time possible to get to this destination is it. Those are the two things that I think define a journey. And so I think you're right. This inclusion, belonging um, um, tract is a journey, but we have to make sure it is. If you asked, this is the thing I ask uh, leaders everywhere. If you, as a, if you and your various leaders, if, you, if they ask their teams, is the destination that they would describe the same as yours. Let's figure out how we get everybody on the same page. Because it isn't a page where only women and black people and Asians and, and people with disabilities are at the top. That's not the image. The image is an image where the very best talent, no matter the package that it comes in, gets to the top. The most driven, ambitious, energetic, those get to the top. That's the vision. And then time. Everybody says, big companies like to say, we're a super tanker. We can't, but no, that's not it. My, one of my colleagues did their doctoral dissertation on murmurations. You know, the, the, the birds, starlings, when they move and, and it's amazing. And, and, and they found out that only four birds have to communicate 
for millions of birds to move in this agile way, to get to the food, to avoid predation. That's what companies are. So everybody listening to this, who are the four people, or maybe the three people to make four of you, who are the three people that you're going to communicate with to let them know the urgency of doing this work, letting them know that nobody has to lose and letting them know exactly what that destination looks like according to your shared goals. So as you know, Investec was founded in South Africa and I am aware that you have a number of connections to the country. And based on your knowledge and experience of the unique cultural dimensions of South Africa and the environment there, what advice on inclusion would you give to South African organizations as we sit here in 2022? Now, Investec, as you know, has a very strong base in South Africa and a very strong base here in the UK. So we have two core geographies being the UK and SA, and then strongly internationally connected to the other geographies in which we operate. But interesting, in, an interesting history having originated out of South Africa and, and carrying something with us also because of that. I uh, have not been to South Africa in two years, obviously, um, but otherwise I go every single year and it is the trip that fortifies me. I recognize the extremes of in inequality that are obvious. I recognize my privilege in being able to avoid experiences of destitution but I've worked with the MBA and I've worked with a, a group of people that I, I go to South Africa with anyway. And what I've realized is that it's the, the richness of that, of South Africa is almost impenetrable. The, the myriad of, of official languages and unofficial languages, the, the, the cultural nuances that are wonderful. I regret not being South African simply because access to this richness would be more at hand. The thing I would say about South Africa uh, and people interested in real equity there is that I know it's hard for people to imagine that a generation on that a legacy of something like apartheid, like slavery in America, there's a temptation for us to want to say, let's, where do we draw the line? Somebody draw the line. It, it, it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years, it's been 30 years, let's draw the line. But there is a legacy and there is something that continues to puncture at the potential, the identity, the opportunity of people who are different. It can be incredibly hard for people to realize that there is a legacy from harm done in the past whether it be slavery in the United States, whether it be apartheid in South Africa, it's, it's hard for people because we want to throw it away so that we can start again. But what we don't, what people don't realize, what white people don't realize in South Africa oftentimes is that apartheid is the foundation that they stand upon in the same way that apartheid is the foundation that many black and brown people stand upon. And we can't ignore its impacts, its resonance. The fact that there are entire groups of people on that ride in through Cape Town, for example, on that ride in from the airport, all the way on the left side. That right there, no one can look at that and say equality of opportunity, the same chance afforded to that bird's nest of electrical wires that looks like a fire hazard waiting to happen versus somebody living even in moderate means in another part of town. And I say to you that in that, in that place, there is talent. And for us to fail to look at it is a continued legacy of apartheid. We must examine all the spaces where talent could come from, even if it presents us with hurdles to overcome. I think it's a remarkable place. It's like a piece of paradise. Thanks, John. We have to make every person have that equality of opportunity to make it a true paradise. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, John, there is actually one more question I'd like to ask you uh, before we wrap up, and, and that is just, which I'm sure you've been asked many times before, but lessons from the pandemic 
as we reflect back. We did speak a little bit about the future being human, but but just some lessons that we take away from the pandemic and thinking about inclusive leadership or, or anything for that matter. We have to give a damn about each other. We have seen through this pandemic, we have seen some of our colleagues in their most intimate spaces, junior colleagues perched on the end of a bed with a laptop, a hot laptop on their knee. We have to care about the fact that, that we have colleagues who are who have been operating in, in really difficult environments. We have to recognize that the end of the pandemic, when it comes, and it is not yet, will be an opportunity for us to rethink how we work together. Even now, you know, based on your schedule alone, Ruth, let's rethink whether we should be having meetings that overlap, that stack on each other. If we really do care about belonging and engaging with people, human beings can't be that engaged and focused for seven hour blocks. So the implications that, that we've got now is a, is a chance to reimagine work for the future, not make it easier, to make it more challenging, more robust, but create this environment where people can thrive. That's what I think we, we, we've learned. We've learned that truth can be eroded very quickly, that facts can be eroded very quickly. We've seen an anti-science movement during this pandemic as as i'd hoped never to see and we must remind people that evidence matters in our work and i know in the work that you know the work an investment bank does people think it's guesswork but it's we've got to rely on the evidence to lead us through there's three things i think thank you so much john unbelievably inspiring i'd like to sit here all day <laughs> and listen to you and, and talk to you but really also just the versatility that you have across so many different subjects the things that you've done in your life the experiences that you've had unbelievable and also just the way you present yourself incredible just wonderful to listen to you i really hope we get to share more time together in the future so much to learn and thank you so much for your time and for being with us today and for all the work that you do with us here at investec greatly appreciated Thank you so much, Ruth. Really appreciate it.